Romans. Not the easiest book in the Bible to study, but it is one of the greatest books in all of Scripture. Perhaps the greatest doctrinal treatise that has ever been written by anyone. It is, it is a, a, a book that is just filled with insight, of great wisdom, of knowledge of God and of the church and of his intention and his will for us, his desire for us. What are our responsibilities? How is, the, how is it that we're part of the body of Christ? Why is it we're part of the body of Christ? And remember that there is a kind of a pattern you see in this book where there's questions that, that Paul anticipates all these questions and, and then he offers answers for the ones he can't answer. Some of them he just doesn't have answers for. But you're going to have a difficult time getting very far through any particular chapter without there being questions asked. And we need to understand that these are questions that Paul himself struggled with first. And he gives the answers that God has enlightened him to. To help other believers as they study through these things. These difficult things of God very often. They very often don't have easy answers to. But many of the questions that people have about the church itself. You're going to find the answers right here. uh, In the book of Romans. Which could be called the gospel according to the apostle Paul which is given to him by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We've noticed here as we've gone through these first few chapters that he has made a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the primary distinction is this, is that that he brings to, to bear is that the Jews were giving their oracles of God. They were given the law of God. They had that benefit which put them in a different place than other people were in. They knew what God's word said. They knew what the will of God was in a way that other people did not know it. That put them in a special place. It also put them in a place of being of greater privilege, but at the same time also of greater responsibility. And we acknowledge that today the church has this gift. We have the gift of the Bible. And it's no longer just the Old Testament as the Jews were afforded in those old, olden times, but also the benefit of the New Testament that has been given to us. It's one of the greatest God, gifts that God has given to man, specifically to people like you and me. And that... We are to use it to the utmost. The utmost, which means we have to know it. We have to read it. We have to study it. There's a sense in which the word of God is the lifeblood for Christians. If you feel anemic as a Christian, it could be this. Maybe you're not spending enough time in the word of God. Maybe you're not rehashing through the gospel over and over again. Maybe you're not thinking more and more about grace, because one of the things you're going to find come to life and bear here in the book of, of Romans, it, it was by grace that God gave the law to Israel. It was by grace that he set them apart as his chosen people. It's by grace that God has chosen those who are in the church of Jesus Christ. 
There's no one in the church that can be a braggart. No one. Who who can say, I'm a believer because I'm just a good person. I'm a believer because I did everything necessary to save me. God is the one who does. God is the one who's doing the doing. The thing that Paul begins to argue for in chapter 4 is this. Is there going to be people who are saying this, that the gospel is new? In other words, in the first century A.D., the gospel is something new. It wasn't something that had been around. It was all new teaching. You know, when Paul went to Athens, the people wanted to hear from him this new teaching, this strange teaching. But what Paul argues is this, is the gospel was there in the Old Testament. That the real gift that God gave to the Jewish people was the gospel. Then instead of using it for the most part for what God intended it to, They saw it as a means to set themselves apart from other people as being the righteous people of God. They began to believe that what was important, the only thing of importance when it came to things like this was their bloodline. They believed that what set them apart, what made them special was the fact that they were bloodline related to Abraham. They believed it was by the doing of the law that they made themselves right with God. Now, let me just tell you something. There is a sense in which the doing of law is something that we're all supposed to be about doing, right? It's by the doing of the law or not the doing of the law that we will either be condemned or we will be commended on the day of judgment. Just let me tell you this. But the doing of it is not going to be your doing of it. The doing of it has to do with Christ doing it for you. Because none of us do the law. None of us keep the law perfectly. None of us come close to keeping the law perfectly. There's not a person that ever breathed air that doesn't desperately need Jesus Christ as their Savior, period. No No one comes even close to good enough to even talk about being good. Paul will declare, or he declared in chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. It's not that we just have fallen a little short of God's glory. It's that we've fallen way short of God's glory. So far short, it's not even worth talking about. There's not one righteous, not one who does good. There are a lot of people out there that believe that Christians believe that we're set apart from them because we're better than they are. That we see ourselves as being better than they are. And unfortunately, very often, what they get from the church just almost seems to justify that understanding of things. Very often, what they get from the church is people, these righteous, self-righteous people that look down their nose at everybody else. Instead of looking inside themselves and seeing the ugliness and the darkness that even now there are vestiges of.
Christ rescues us. We do not rescue ourselves. He does for us what we do not do. He does for us what we cannot even do. But again, Paul in chapter 4 is going to begin to argue this you know, because people have made this distinction. You know, you see, you see the distinction the scriptures made between the Jews and the Gentiles over and over again. Paul's going to continue to make distinction in a sense between the two through the book of Romans. But ultimately, it is for this purpose. Is that is to show that Jew or Gentile, the important thing, is are you Christ or not Christ? That is the thing that either makes you a child of God or not a child of God. It doesn't matter what your bloodline is. Period. So what he's going to do here in these first verses is argue that it's been around. It's not something new, okay? What then shall, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And God, or Abraham, believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Now he turns to David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You understand that what he's saying here is this, is it's always been about faith. Faith is what saves people, not the law. And it's always been true. It's nothing new. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. And what Paul is arguing here, he's going to be arguing through this chapter, is this, is that the Jews and Gentiles are saved through the same means, and that is through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, faith, faith. Faith is what has always saved people. It's not some New Testament concept. There should be nothing that grieves your and my heart and your heart more than this. When, when Christians take Christianity and they make it just into another form of self-righteous religion. And there are going to be people today meeting in churches and places across this world where fundamentally that's what they're going to be encouraged to believe. To believe in self-righteousness. Self-righteousness will not save anyone because there really is no one who is self-righteous. No, not one. Not one single one. It 
If you don't know any other passage, any other verse from Genesis, you need to know Genesis 15, 6. A lot of it is really, really important. Creation in the first two or three chapters is important. This is important. Noah's important. All that kind of stuff. But what I'm telling you is perhaps the most important verse for you to know in all of Genesis, except for maybe in the beginning God created him, heavens and the earth, is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Say it. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, if you know anything about Abraham, you know he wasn't a perfect person, right? Did he keep those Ten Commandments? Well, they hadn't been given to him yet, right? But at the same time, we've talked about how some things are, should be very obvious to everybody, and there is, there's, there's what we call this natural revelation, which is just creation around us, just screams of the reality of God, that it demands that there must be a God uh, for things to be as they are and for you and I to even exist. We had to have a creator. We couldn't have just come out of nothing. There had to be a being behind it that drove it, that made it happen. Either you believe that or you believe that, that, that this universe somehow came into existence out of nothing. There was nothing and all of a sudden it was here. Period. That's your only option, to believe that or believe that God did it. Either you believe that God gave life like we have or you believe that there's just some natural process by which life just came to be. In any other context, people would think that's a joke. Both of those ideas are ridiculous. To believe that this universe came into existence out of nothing, from nothing, by no one. And to believe that life just kind of sprung into existence kind of accidentally. For someone to believe that life just sprung forth out of really nothing is just, it just, they just don't have any clue how complicated life is. Now, we know a lot more about life now than we used to, but one of the strange things is this is, is we still haven't been able to come up with a decent definition of what life is. For life to be, there must be a life giver. It's the only possible, intelligible, realistic answer. But people tend to be legalists. And like I was saying before, I don't know how I got off on that, but, but like I was saying before, one of the things that really should irritate, aggravate us more than anything else is when people take Christianity and just change it into another works salvation thing. Where it all becomes about your doing. And there are sermons that are going to be preached about that. You need to be doing this, that, and the other, and whatever. Period. Now, do we need to be doing this, that, there, and the other? You betcha. But not because it saves us, because we are saved. In other words, good works are the fruit of faith. You have faith, there are going to be good works in your life. There are no good works, and maybe you need to consider whether you really have faith in Christ or not.
Legalism kills. Legalism destroys. Legalism condemns. Remember Paul Kalfa? Paul Kalfa. A few years ago, a PCA ordained minister that was here with us for a couple of years and someone that I know and I respect a lot. Used to fill in for me to preach when I wasn't here and things like that. But he had he had come here after serving in a church in Muncie, New York for a year. It was a PCA church, a little PCA church. It was right in the middle of a Hasidic Jewish community. And he, he would tell us things like this, that on Sunday, because it was this, or on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, those Hasidic Jews couldn't do anything. They couldn't even turn a light bulb on or off. He and Lisa lived right in the middle of a community. In other words, they were in their neighbor. They were in the neighbor they lived in. They were surrounded by these Hasidic Jews, and they knew they were Christians. But you remember, on the Sabbath day, they couldn't even turn a light bulb on or off because that was work. And so they go looking for Paul or Lisa. And they would never ask them if they could turn the light on or turn it off for them. And they would just follow them into a room and they'd kind of look at the light or, you know, without saying anything. You know, basically, could you please turn this light on for me or turn this light off for me? You see how ridiculous things are? That's what legalism does to people. What I'm telling you here is this, is no one can function as a legalist. There is no strict legalist. Because by doing what they were doing, they were almost telling him, well, it's okay for you to do it, but I can't do it. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, and it's a really nice thing for you to do it for me, but I can't do it for myself. And they have to believe that Paul and Lisa were going to hell because they were doing the things they were doing, but they were okay to ask him, in essence, to do them for them because they couldn't do them. See, legalism kills people. Legalized Christianity does the same thing. We need to be very careful not to be legalistic at all in our approach to things. Do you understand what the lie of legalism is? The lie of legalism is you can be good enough, you can do well enough to save yourself. If you just keep the rules. If you think that's what Christianity is, then you're dead wrong. That spits in the face of Christianity. Christianity says, oh, by the way, there are rules. And oh, by the way, you don't keep those rules. As a matter of fact, you don't even want to keep those rules. That no one comes close to keeping those rules. Therefore, if anyone is ever going to be saved from their own destructive ways, God himself has got to do it. 
Abraham was a dirty, stinking rat half the time. Remember what he did when he and Sarah went down to Egypt? She was evidently a pretty good-looking gal, and he was afraid that the men there were going to, you know, want Sarah. And it turns out that Pharaoh did, and, 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 but Sarah and Abraham worked out this deal between the two of them because technically she was like a second or third sister to him. But they denied that she was his wife. In other words, and remember those Ten Commandments. There you go. David, here you have Abraham, the father of the faith, and Sarah, his wife, lying to save their own can. He did the same thing years later with Abimelech, the, the king of the Philistines, years after his close encounters with God. What about David? David's mentioned here too. What about David? He was just this perfect, great guy, right? Did all the right things all the time, right? Never messed up one time. He just had, he's, a, he's a guy that's described as having a heart for God, a man after God's own heart. He obviously never did anything bad, right? He committed adultery and had the husband of Bathsheba murdered, which you and I would classify as some of the most heinous, horrendous sins that we could possibly imagine. My whole point here is that we need to understand something, that neither Abraham or David were good enough on their own to make it on their own. Either one of them, even though they obviously had special purpose and God had a special love for both of these men. But what saved them was their faith in God, not in themselves. He doesn't even mention things that David, David did or things that were said about David. He, 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 he lists some things here that David himself actually wrote. That blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Psalm 32, 1. And whose sins have been covered. Notice here he's not saying, blessed is the man who is righteous. Blessed is the man who is saved because he's never committed a sin against God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. In other words, the thing that set Abraham apart and David both apart was this, is they were forgiven by God. And just remember, it was a long time after then that Jesus came on the scene. You know, there's a benefit, there's an advantage that we have sitting where we are in, at this point in redemptive history than other people did in the past. In other words, Abraham and David were looking forward to a Savior to come, one who was going to be that perfect righteousness. They knew they were not. The one in whom they place their hope and their faith, not in themselves. 
we sit on the other end of a redemptive history because the Redeemer has come. His name is Jesus. But people that are saved today are fundamentally saved the same way they always have been. Through faith. Faith in God to save them. Not faith in themselves to save themselves. It's nothing new. However, we see it a lot more clearly than David and Abraham did. Because Christ has come. And Christ has been crucified. And Christ has been resurrected. And Christ has ascended back into heaven. Like we've said all along, that there's a sense in which The church today is gifted in ways that no one else has been. We have more. We have more to go on than anybody in the past did. Because we now have not only the, the New Testament, we also have the history of the church of Jesus Christ. That's not the same thing as Scripture. But it puts us in a place of knowing more. And we would like to think that puts us in a place of less responsibility. But the truth of the matter is this. If you start adding oranges to oranges and whatever, you come to the conclusion that's just not true. That that reality is this. is further along as you go in redemptive history, the more responsible people are because there's more to know. In other words, what I'm telling you is we see all of this, the big picture, more clearly now than anyone else in history ever has. Because of the unfolding of things. We have more to go on, not less. There's a sense in which it should be a lot easier for you and I to believe it than it has been for people in the past. Just simply because we've got more to go on. A lot more. And what I would say to you is this, is as we go through this book of Romans, the thing that I am hoping will happen is that every one of us will appreciate more and more and deeper and deeper the things that God has done for us to bring us where we are for the simple reason that he determined he wanted to have a relationship with us. And he determined that at the very beginning of time. In other words, the gospel for you and I should be more glorious, should be more grand, should be more wonderful and unbelievable and majestic than it has been for any people that have lived in past history. In other words, we should see God bigger and better than ever before. And the question is, do we? Honestly. Do we? Do I?
دیگه Are you in absolute awe of God? You ought to be. Me too.